Hi, this is Dave Isay, founder of StoryCorps. This message comes from NPR sponsor Subaru, celebrating their Share the Love event now through January 3rd. By year's end, Subaru and their retailers will have donated over $225 million to help others. Visit Subaru.com share. If you've been listening to StoryCorps for a while, You know that our archive at the Library of Congress holds thousands of conversations between friends and loved ones. A good amount of them are about things we can all relate to, like courage, the courage to love, to share your heart, and to work towards goals that can sometimes be so much bigger than just yourself. So on this season of the StoryCorps podcast from NPR, we're bringing you stories of trailblazers, people who pushed boundaries and broke barriers. From the 82-year-old woman who became the oldest person to reach outer space, to the first Black woman to join the Coast Guard, to the man whose research helped make heart surgery what it is today. I'm your host, Camila Kashani, and on this episode, we're talking all about medicine and the people who made some life-saving achievements, literally. First, we're going to go back to the 1940s. Back then, Dr. Charles R. Drew was the chief of surgery at Freedman's Hospital in Washington, D.C. Now it's called Howard University Hospital. Dr. Drew did a lot of work with blood, learning how it works, how it can be stored, how it's transfused, all that kind of stuff. During World War II, his research made it possible to get blood to injured soldiers on the battlefield, saving countless lives. Earlier this year, his daughter, Dr. Charlene Drew Jarvis, came to StoryCorps with her son, Ernest Drew Jarvis, to remember her father and his work. My dad was a taskmaster. He was fair. He was demanding. And that drive for excellence was something that all of us felt, whether it was his children, whether it was his nurse. And that drive felt like a horse that never went to sleep. He is referred to as the father of blood banking, but during the Second World War. The Red Cross denied the right of African-Americans to give blood, which meant that Dr. Drew, having discovered ways of storing and preserving blood and plasma, couldn't himself have been a donor. When they changed that policy, it led to the segregation of blood. But my father said there is no scientific reason why there should be segregation. And further than that, he said, you need the blood. We are at war. But there was another way in which Dr. Drew felt very strongly training African-American residents who were denied by the American Medical Association the opportunity to staff hospitals. So before he died, he trained most of the African-American surgeons in this country I think Dr. Drew would call himself a determined teacher and surgeon. And if that took taking a stand, that's what he did. Dr. Drew was really passionate about giving his residents as many opportunities to learn as possible. One night, he was driving three of them to a medical conference. My father had been at the hospital all day. He'd had surgery. He'd been to uh, an event in the evening. And they started out almost at midnight. 
My father was driving when he fell asleep in the car, pulled to one side, and he pulled it back. And in the process, the car flipped and injured him grievously. The other people in the car with him had some minor injuries, and they were all treated at the nearest hospital, which was segregated. And while Dr. Drew was able to receive care, they couldn't save him. When you were a kid, how much did you know about the work that your father was doing? I didn't know until he died. I was eight years old. My mother felt that it was better that we not be at the service, and I was at school that day. When the funeral procession left, it went by my school, and I saw the cars going by, and the cars went by, and they went by, and I was simply astounded that there were so many people who had come to memorialize him that made me understand that so many people revered him. It is an enormous thing to think about even now. At such an early age, he was 45 years old, to have done so much in such a little bit of time is the legacy that I have. You know, I call him Dr. Drew because it is honorific. He has become a man of the ages. A man of the ages... I don't know, from my perspective, is not someone who's called daddy. (laughs) He's taken his place in the lexicon of history. And I wonder, Ernie, about what you think is the legacy. The legacy continues as a contribution to help all mankind, irrespective of race, and prolong the human life. I will carry these conversations on to my children, who will then carry these conversations on to theirs, they will all know that Dr. Drew blazed a path for them. That's Ernest Drew Jarvis with his mom, Dr. Charlene Drew Jarvis. Around the same time Dr. Drew was researching blood in D.C., a young lab assistant was making breakthroughs in heart surgery in Baltimore. More on that after a short break. Stay with us. Hi, this is Dave Isay, founder of StoryCorps. Support for our podcast and the following message comes from Morgan Stanley, a proud sponsor of StoryCorps. Morgan Stanley is committed to giving back and to fostering meaningful dialogue among people and communities. See how Morgan Stanley, through demonstrating their core values, is giving back to the communities where they live and work at morganstanley.com. Vivian Thomas grew up in Nashville. His dad was a carpenter, but Vivian had dreams of being a doctor. He enrolled in college as pre-med. His finances took a hit, 
and he had to drop out. But even though he never graduated from college, he landed a job as the assistant to a surgeon named Dr. Alfred Blaylock. Dr. Blaylock caught him one day reading books and asked him why was he reading the books, and he explained that he wanted to become a surgeon. So Dr. Blaylock showed him a few things. Vivian caught on very fast, and before you know it, he was performing experiments for Dr. Blaylock. That's Jerry Harris. He came to StoryCorps in 2017 with his friend Fred Gilliam. Fred and Jerry were both lab technicians who trained under Vivian Thomas when he was the director of surgical research laboratories at Johns Hopkins. And like Dr. Thomas, neither of them had any formal surgery experience or training. Fred was actually fresh out of high school when Dr. Thomas offered him a job. But Dr. Thomas thought it was important to mentor other Black men. So he taught them. Here's Jerry. There weren't any Black physicians at Hopkins anyway. I used to see Vivian, and I used to be in awe of him. Yeah, he kind of took me under his wing, and he obviously saw something in me that I maybe didn't see in myself. Because we were probably the first African-Americans in Hopkins to be recognized in lab coats without names on them. All the other African-Americans that worked at Hopkins were cleaning, housekeeping, or in food service. So he was a father figure as well as a mentor. Back then, there was smoking allowed in the buildings, and he would always have his pipe. He'd come through, he'd stop if we were working in our respective labs, and he'd peep over your shoulder, and he wouldn't hesitate to say, well, you're getting ready to make a mistake. But when he would puff on that pipe, smile, and walk out, you knew you were doing your job. He had patience. He would never raise his voice. And he realized there were things that you had to learn. He knew that you were going to make mistakes at times. He would correct them in a way that you wouldn't be nervous. It was mind-boggling. I had no medical experience. And he took me under his wing, and he taught me everything I needed to know. We were able to perform surgical procedures alone. I remember that was the one time in the critical part of the operation. A doctor became ill, and he fainted. And Vivian was walking by at the time, and I'm standing there, and he said, well, no, you go ahead and finish it. <laughs> and I was stunned, but I wasn't shocked. I think that was one of the days that I grew up as a surgeon. Just want to clarify, this operation was being done on an animal. This was a research lab, so they were doing medical experiments. And Dr. Thomas wasn't even technically a surgeon at Hopkins. So even though he was operating regularly, he was classified and paid as an unskilled lab assistant. And since he didn't have an official medical degree, Dr. Thomas was never allowed to operate on a living patient anyway. So they worked on all kinds of animals. At the time, we were using dogs, cats, pigs, gosh, goats, you name it. And we worked with domestic animals as well as wild, wild animals. animals. He was amazing in that Vivian was a specialist from head to toe. Neurosurgery, gastrointestinal, orthopedics, cardiac, you name it, and he could do it. And he not only could do it, he could teach it. Vivian did not get the credit for the things that he developed. At the particular time, no one believed that you could operate on the heart. People that had heart disease, it has died. He designed and made instruments. Curved cutting needle, straight cutting needle. He developed a respirator. In order to do procedures, the patient had to be intubated and something Sedated. had to breathe for him. Yep. 
babies, their lungs weren't fully developed. And it was found out that uh, the reason why, because of mom's nutrition, out of that program, WIC was formed. I didn't realize the significance of his accomplishments until post-Hopkins. I think Vivian's greatest accomplishment was just training, teaching, and mentoring young men. Historically, there were so many, many cures and procedures that came out of what we did. But we weren't appreciated, I don't think. How many people knew that there were 26 black technicians in that lab and what they were doing? This was the 60s, so it was pretty normal across the country for non-white people to be excluded from common spaces. The fact that there were Black folks with white coats on at the time was mind-boggling in itself. When Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in 1968, Fred and Jerry were still at Hopkins. The city of Baltimore, like a lot of others, saw some riots. Six people died, a lot more were injured, and hundreds of private and public spaces were burned. Fred, Jerry, and the rest of the Black staff watched the fight for equality happen right in their backyards. We were on the 12th floor, and we could see the whole city. I remember the day it actually broke out, and Vivian and I were standing together at the window. He looked out, and you could see how he was hurt by it. At the time, you know, there was segregation. A lot of places he could not go. He wasn't allowed to even socialize a party with the, some of the same people that he trained. As a matter of fact, when Dr. Blaylock had a party, he would have to enter through the back door and would have to bartend. He wouldn't talk much about it, but I think deep down inside that bothered him because some of these same professors and doctors, he said after hours they would stay in the lab and drink together but he could not go out in the public and drink with them, or he couldn't go to their homes and drink with them openly. Sometimes he would call me in the office and he would tell me some of the stories, and I realized some of the things that he kept to himself for so long. Despite the discrimination they were facing, the Black surgical techs leaned on each other to get their work done at Hopkins. And in between all the surgery, they built in quality time with each other. Working in the, the surgical research lab was one of the high points of my life. I think we had probably the best job in the world back then. In between surgeries or during breaks, we had a little basketball hoop on the door. We used to shoot paper balls, and we even had water battles. Right. We start out with a small syringe, and then it wound up somebody getting the hose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a fun time. That lab, that was unity. Vivian would come through, chuckle, and keep moving. He would never tell us to stop. It was a good relationship. He was an excellent mentor. And for me, coming from a fatherless home, he represented a father figure, and I also considered him a friend. The very first car I had purchased, somebody hit me in the rear, and I was without a car for two weeks. So he came by my house every day and picked me up and took me to work. Never accepted a penny. I couldn't offer him anything. I think the other thing that he took pride in, the way he would address his wife and his kids, he was showing us that's what you're supposed to do. The most important lesson he taught me was to never be content with where I was and to always look to better myself. 
He generally cared about the technicians, the physicians that came through there. And ultimately, Vivian wanted us all to become MDs. Yes, I think he had that desire. I don't feel I'm part of his legacy, but I feel blessed and privileged to have been part of his history. If I had the opportunity today, I'd just thank him for being who he was in my life at that time in my life. I would just thank him for the expertise and knowledge that he bestowed on me, being there for me, and if I fell, he was there to pick me up. That's Jerry Harris and his friend Fred Gilliam in Baltimore, Maryland, who spent decades doing research at Johns Hopkins, carrying on the legacy of Dr. Vivian Thomas. Johns Hopkins did eventually give Dr. Thomas an honorary doctorate in 1976. He died in 1985. These two men in this episode did cutting-edge work and made life-saving discoveries. But like Ernest Drew said earlier, they also made lasting impacts on the people they taught and on the people who came after them. That's all for this episode of the StoryCorps podcast. It was produced by me and edited by Layla Oweda. Our executive editor is Jasmine Morris. Our technical director is Jarrett Floyd, who also composed our theme song. This episode was fact-checked by Zanna McKay. Special thanks to Alita Cooper, Emily Martinez, and Jay Bourne. To see what music we use in the episode, go to storycore.org. You can also check out original artwork created for this season by Lynn Lucien. For the StoryCorps podcast, I'm Camila Kashani. Catch you next week. This podcast is brought to you by supporters of StoryCorps, an independently funded nonprofit organization, and is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.